everybody. How you doing? And welcome to episode number 90 of the John Riley Project. It's Tuesday night, November 5th, 2019, and we're broadcasting, you guessed it, from the city in the country, Poway, California. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. It's um, well, probably about 9.15 in the evening um, on a Tuesday night. It's 9.15. It feels like it's 2 in the morning since they switched the clocks. How you adjust into that? What the heck? I mean, as as voters here in California, we voted to abolish this changing the clocks nonsense. My understanding is it has to be approved by Congress or something. But I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, this whole process of switching back and forth, it feels like a leftover vestige from the agrarian society of the 19th century, you know, when we had farmers plowing the fields and Heck now, I mean, Andrew Yang will tell us it's all automated now. It's all AI. Well, a good deal of it's automated for sure. But yeah, why in the heck do we still switch the clocks? And then if we switch, do you think we should stick standard time or should we stick to daylight time? I, I frankly don't care as much, you know. Um, I mean, it's actually nice to have it late, light late in the summer. But in the fall and the winter, you know, it doesn't really matter much to me. Um, I just wish it was just consistent. Um, but thank God, almost all of our devices automatically switch. I still got to manually move a couple of clocks that are analog, and I got to reset the, the clock on my oven and on my microwave. But fortunately, a lot of the other clocks are automatic. So, yeah, they need to get this finally fixed. Crazy. Um, Hey, what are we going to – we're not going to talk about daylight savings time today, although that was on my mind. We're really going to talk today about this big news in Oklahoma where they've just released a lot of prisoners. And I I just think this is a wonderful story. So we're going to get into that because we're going to talk about criminal justice system and and some of my thoughts on that. but, you know, there's this is a really active night tonight. I mean, there's there was a an election in Kentucky. Um, there was another very interesting vote in New York City that I'd like to talk about some of those. And, um, yeah, the, the Aztecs just had their opening game for the 2019-2020 men's basketball season, and they just played Texas Southern. Um, I was listening to that game. It wasn't on TV, um, but I listened to the game on the radio. The Aztecs had an unbelievable. They were up 48 to 13 at the half. They shot 56% from behind the three-point line, just on fire. And the second half was just a sloppy mess. And the Aztecs ended up winning 77-42 over Texas Southern. You know, small D1 school, about 10,000 students in Houston, Hey, that's a good way to get started, you know, and these new players on the Aztecs, they really look promising. They can shoot. I mean, this is like we haven't seen this kind of a collection of shooters in a very long time uh, with the Aztec uniform. So I'm pretty fired up for that. So I listened to that tonight and I, I was listening to the game, you know, streaming on my computer while I was making notes preparing for this podcast. And I had the, the Kentucky um, Michigan State game on the TV, you know, with the sound off and um, just kind of triple tasking with all the media going on. Um, but yeah, I do. I'm, before I get into the, the the incarceration thing in Oklahoma, I do want to just kind of touch on some of these new news stories that, that happened today. And um, the, the as long as we're talking sports, we just talk basketball. How about the news of the San Diego Chargers? Well, whoop, timeout. The Los Angeles tar- Chargers, the rumors of them maybe moving 
to London. And it's just so comical what is happening with that franchise that moving up to L.A. and the people in L.A., you know, they they don't care. You know, they they just dismiss them. And just after what Dean Spanos did to the fans in San Diego to screw us over, to basically demand that he gets a free stadium or a dramatically taxpayer-subsidized stadium. Um, Voters here in San Diego called his bluff. I'm very proud of that. Um, I think that was the right thing to do. And then the guy moves up to L.A. and and happily spends $650 million on on a franchise relocation fee, which is just bonkers. Um, But the fact that they're struggling to get any traction in LA is just delicious. It is so much fun to watch and laugh at him Um, because, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, there, and I think I commented on one of my early podcasts was talking about the uh, Chargers ex-girlfriend where, you know, Union Tribune columnist Nick Canepa could still not get over the fact that the Chargers left San Diego. I'm when they left, I just said, man, see you later. You know, good riddance. And and I, I told you, I, I rarely watch the NFL anymore. But apparently there's rumors that the NFL might try to convince the Chargers or the Jacksonville Jaguars to move to London because neither of them are doing very well in their home cities. And the the apparently the fans in London are hungry for a team and all the games that they've hosted there have been very strongly attended. There's a there's a solid base of fans there. Wouldn't that be something if if Dean Spanos and the Chargers got banished to London? Um, I've, I'd feel kind of bad for the players, especially, you know, Philip Rivers. He just lives not too far from us. He lives in Del Sur. He used to live here in Poway uh, for quite some time, but um, now just lives about I don't know, probably five, six miles from my home here. And would he move to London? I kind of doubt it. I think Philip Rivers is kind of near the finish line on his career. But that's that's a crazy story. And the, the Twitter... Um, snarky comments have been just fantastic today. Um, Just basically, you know, poking fun at Dean Spanos and the Los Angeles Chargers. So um, I do want to comment on these two very interesting um, developments with the vote that happened today. The first one that happened in Kentucky. And wow, what the big news, um, the incumbent governor, uh, Matt Bevin, a Republican, was defeated by the Democrat, Andy Bashir, And this was a very interesting piece of news. Now, Bevin, a Republican, a hardcore Trump supporter, um, and in many ways, kind of a, you know, he was kind of acting like an ass as a governor, um, you know, in terms of how he interacted with certain segments of the public and, and with teachers. And there was all kinds of just excessive drama with this guy. Um, and Kentucky, you, you normally think of that as a pretty heavily red state. But it's interesting. If you go back the rolls and look at their governors, there's been a history of a lot of Democrats there. Um, well, anyways, he, he just got he just lost. So. What makes this really intriguing is, I mean, number one is the fact that a governor switched teams. Um, So now it's a Democrat. It's now a blue governor rather than a red governor. But more importantly, 
it's really a referendum on President Trump. Um, and because a lot of these, you know, state and local elections really are. And in this particular case, President Trump, you know, was just there in Kentucky doing these rallies, trying to pump up Bevin. Um, and that fell short. And then you begin to wonder, is this a telltale sign for what's going to happen in the 2020 presidential race when you know, Trump eventually goes up against the Democratic nominee. Is this a signal that his base is eroding? And I think that's a fair question to ask. I mean, a lot of the states where he won, especially those Midwest states where he won, he only barely eked through in in, in, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, and even in Ohio and, and Pennsylvania. And so it doesn't take much of a of an erosion of support in those states to see those states flip back to the blue column. So this is intriguing. And then the other part of the story is Rand Paul. Now, full confession here. Um, I was big time rooting for Rand Paul in the 2016 primaries early on uh, because he represents a lot of the same themes that I talk about, about individual liberty and the Bill of Rights and and lower taxes, lower regulation, low, lower government intrusion into people's lives. Um, he's very much aligned with me. But then when Trump was elected, Rand Paul like just went to the dark side. He he flipped. And rather than, you know, really being a strong, principled, philosophic opponent of Trump, in many ways, you know, he's jumped on board with Trump and some call him the Trump whisperer because he's trying to um, – you know, really influence Trump to implement some of Rand Paul's foreign policy objectives, which I do like, which is really to to reduce our war footprint. In fact, bring our troops home. Um, but in other ways, I mean, I sometimes with Rand, I, I've been very disappointed with him. And I, I guess I, I fell in the trap of never fall in love with a politician. And and Julie Mason, the host of um, of the Press Pool, which is a great talk show program on satellite radio, Sirius XM channel 124 POTUS. Um, she often comments on that. Never fall in love with a politician. They always disappoint you. Rand Paul is disappointing me. And he was up on stage with Trump trying to fire up the Republican base to, um, you know, come out and support Bevin. But also really trying to, you know, expose the whistleblower and the whole um, uh, impeachment process. And I mean, that's a whole rabbit hole we can go down, but um, just Ram Paul. So I often thought to myself that one of the things that he did, I think the reason that he flipped to the dark side, the reason that he went from being, you know, a very independently minded um, Republican, some would say a libertarian Republican in the Senate to suddenly being very aligned with Trump. I think he had to take a really close look at his political reality in Kentucky. And if he continued to oppose Trump, he likely would not have survived as a senator in, in Kentucky. So I wonder if that was the calculus. And now that the Republican um, governor has been booted from Kentucky, what does that mean for Rand Paul's future? Will he still stay closely aligned with Trump or will he see that, you know, the the, the winds have shifted a little bit in his home state? And then what's going to happen with Mitch McConnell? You know, the the Senate majority leader, the guy that, frankly, is withholding a lot of bills, not letting them get out to the floor so there can be a healthy debate, which is really what we need to see in Congress. Um, what's going to happen with Mitch 
um, Mitch McConnell, you know, or some people call him uh, Moscow Mitch. I like the other guy. He was a politician in Maryland, I think, that ran for election. He didn't win, but he would call him Cocaine Mitch um, because of some rumors with his wife's family, you know, smuggling cocaine. The most ridiculous. I don't know. Who knows if it's true? I have no idea. But what's going to happen with him? And I know there's a lot of Democrats that are salivating for Mitch McConnell to get um, to lose his election in the Senate. And I think he's coming up for reelection in 2020. So so the whole state of Kentucky, you know, what's going on, you know, and um, that's actually one of the few states I've never visited. We are, you know, my wife and I, we were just in Tennessee. We were in Nashville. It's pretty close. Um, I've been in Ohio and Pennsylvania, but I've never made it to Kentucky. That's one of the states I like to go check out. Um, go to uh, Louisville. Um, and that's the home of, you know, the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali. And um, it would be great to go to, you know, to the Kentucky Derby. I mean, there's probably a ton of great things to do in Kentucky, but that'll be another trip. Um, my my good uh, friend here from the podcast, Pete Neald, has been to the Corvette Museum there in Bowling Green, Kentucky, numerous times. And we've told stories about that here on the podcast. So, um, yeah, so the Kentucky races are interesting, but I'm, I'm really looking through the lens. What does this mean for President Trump in the November 2020 race? Is this an erosion of support? Is this just a blip because Bevin was disliked by so many people? What does this mean? So I think, you know, you're going to turn on your cable news channel of choice. They'll be spinning it however they choose. Um, the second interesting piece of news that happened, and this was a little bit under the radar, wasn't mentioned very much on TV. At least I didn't see it. Uh, but I read about it online and I immediately went to the article. And it's the city of New York City um, had a ballot measure that was approved by the voters to implement ranked choice voting. And it won. And I'm just overjoyed with this. I think this is a fantastic thing. And I've talked about ranked choice voting before when I did the whole elections are rigged podcast. And, you know, just to re-explain this particular system, when you do a um, – you know, a regular election and, you know, let's say there's five people on the ballot and you vote for whomever you want to vote for. So you pick one of those five. And if that one person, you know, gets more than 50 percent of the vote, then they win. And if they get less than 50 percent of the vote, usually they'll take the top two and they'll have a runoff election later on. And the dynamic usually is, is that we see this, you know, where. People will say, I don't want to vote for one of those lesser candidates because that would be, you know, wasting my vote. That's the common myth that's thrown out there. And instead, I'm going to hold my nose. I'm going to I'm going to take a deep breath and gulp and I'm going to vote for a Republican or a Democrat that I really don't like. But it would be, it's far better to have them in than the other Republican or Democrat who is truly evil, right? That's how a lot of people vote. And in the 2016 election, a lot of people that voted for Hillary Clinton were almost more motivated to keep Trump out than they were to elect Hillary Clinton. And the same was true in the other direction. A lot of the people that voted for Trump were motivated to keep Hillary Clinton out uh, and to 
essentially elect Donald Trump. And people are hesitant to vote for independent candidates, third party candidates, uh, because they think that's a wasted vote. And this always gets right in my craw because I'm an independent voter. I am not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I have huge, huge problems with the policies and platforms of those two parties. Um, I typically will vote for independent candidates or third party candidates. I take the opposite approach. I I don't consider that a wasted vote at all. In fact, I'm voting according to my own conscience. I'm voting for what I truly believe best represents what, um, you know, my philosophy, my morality, my ethics, the whole package. I pick the candidates most aligned, even if I know they have no chance of winning. And to me, compromising my principles would be precisely throwing my vote away, voting for someone that I didn't like or that I was, uh, you know, I objected to. But most people don't think that way. Most people have bought into this whole wasted uh, vote notion. That's what makes ranked choice voting so great, because if you had five candidates on the ballot, rather than holding your nose and picking a lesser of evils, Instead, you can say, oh, I got five candidates. I can stack rank them one through five. So I can pick my dream candidate and put him number one or, or her number one. And then, you know, the the candidate that I would normally have voted for in the previous election format, the one that was maybe from my party, but I didn't really like, but they were still better than the evil person from that other party. You might put that person as your second or third choice. And then you might have that evil candidate dead last, right? And so that way you can vote your conscience and you can still vote with a safety pick in the two or three spot, you know, if you're the guy that or, or the candidate that you really wanted if they didn't get elected. And so there's an algorithm that they go through and, you know, if you, you the, your vote will go to your number one choice and then if that person doesn't win the election, then your vote moves down to the number two choice. And, and essentially they go through this process and the beautiful thing is, is that you have, a, you know, a winner comes forward from this. It's based on, you know, the, the stack ranking that you implemented and there's no need for a runoff election, which simplifies the process saves money in the process, eliminates, you know, a whole other round of campaigning and lengthening the election process. So this is just a really, really good system. And I have a friend of mine who lives in Minneapolis and they have it. And in fact, he he voted tonight and he was telling me the story about how wonderful it was. He put his number one person in in, in the number one slot and his number two person in the number two slot. But then what ended up happening is, is his second choice ended up winning it. But his first choice came in second and he felt, okay, you know, the system worked as intended. So he was really happy with that. Now, San Francisco has implemented this, um, but New York City is by far the biggest city. Well, it's the biggest city in America. It's the biggest city to implement ranked choice voting. And I think this is going to give huge legitimacy to this type of voting. And it said here um, in the article from Politico, um, New York City will move to a system of ranked choice voting, shaking up the way its elections are run after voters approved a a ballot question to make the change. Now, what's interesting is establishment politicians don't like this, right? Because it's giving upstarts, third parties, independents, it's giving them a better 
chance to kind of break the logjam. This whole lesser of evils thing plays right into the hands of the establishments and the two main parties. So um, what would you expect would happen in California? You know, like I said, um, San Francisco has implemented this. There's a few other cities in California that have also implemented it. For some reason, the city of Vallejo is on my mind. I'm not sure if that was one of them, but there are a collection of them. But what did Governor Gavin Newsom do when this bill came before his desk? He vetoed it last month. He said, ah, that would have allowed more cities and counties to use the system. But he said it would create too much voter confusion. So I'm going to veto it. So this is an example of essentially politicians trying to protect themselves, protect their team, okay, and, um, and, and keep competitors at bay, keep them at distance. The system is rigged. The election systems are rigged, and now they're protecting that rigging. So, in New York City, the voters were able to vote to implement it. And let's hope that it actually results in um, full implementation to, for the next election cycle. I think California needs to implement this. I'd love to see this everywhere. You know, my my friend in Minneapolis, we were talking about it. That if we really want to break the logjam of these two main parties that dominate the uh, political landscape, the two main parties that are putting forward policies that are just destroying parts of America, if we want to really shake that up and have a, a, a vigorous debate of the issues and to really encourage a whole new way of voting, there's two things that need to happen. One is the implementation of ranked choice voting. And the second is to open up the debates. That's why you hear me always talking about my disappointment when the Democratic field right now is winnowing their list of candidates on the stage. That's not good. I I really object to that policy. The Republicans did that in 2016 in their primaries. And I really get upset when we get into October um, of you know of every of general election cycle, you know when whether it's Trump and and Hillary or it's Obama and Romney or Obama and McCain, in every one of those cases, there's just two lecterns, two podiums on the stage. You know where's the 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 candidate that represents all the independent voters? Because after all, there are more independent or no party preference voters than there are Republicans. And there are more independent, no party preference voters than there are Democrats. Yet the candidate to represent independent, registered independents doesn't have representation on the stage. And so, um, so anyways, uh, I'm just ecstatic that New York City has implemented or voted to implement ranked choice voting. Let's hope it doesn't get tied up in the courts or some BS argument. And then let's see if we can get some traction, a little nationwide movement on this. I think it'd be great. And even imagine if you're implementing it in small cities with limited budgets to do um, elections and elections are expensive. Imagine eliminating the expense of a second runoff. That's the other beauty of Ranked choice voting. It's also called instant runoff or IRV. That's the other name that it'll go by. So, um, yeah. So, anyways, really happy for New York City. So, yeah, tonight, crazy night, man. I mean, the the Kentucky election, the um, New York City um, vote, um, the Aztecs had a nice win over Texas Southern. 
Um, I just checked the news. I was talking with my buddy Jeff. He's a big Wisconsin fan. And St. Mary's just beat Wisconsin. Apparently St. Mary's is ranked 20th um, in the preseason poll. So that was a big win. And nice for a West Coast team. My buddy Jeff is a Wisconsin Badger. He wasn't too happy about it. But great to see college basketball starting. I'm really excited about that. Um, and, the, and, the, and the stupid Chargers maybe going to move to London. Dean Spanos was pissed. He, he, he was, you know, dropping all kinds of curse words and, and insisting that they're going to stay in L.A. And I just think <laughs> that guy, I mean, it's just um, what they say, instant karma is going to get you. That's a John Lennon quote there. So, OK. Um, wow. This is episode number 90. We're. We're only 10 away from 100, Um, although with a little asterisk. We mentioned this in um, a little bit, if you follow me on social media, on my Facebook page, John Riley Project. Um, We we skipped episode 22, okay? And and it was back right after the uh, the local elections here in Poway. And this is when Pete Neal, you know, he was a candidate for city council here in Poway. I had offered up a, a Essentially, I did a podcast on the post-game show for the uh, Poway area elections, and I kind of broke down the mayoral race, the city council race, the school board races, and kind of wrapped everything up. And then Pete, you know, he was a candidate, and he, he had a few counterpoints with me. And I had that for that episode, we had gotten some um, wireless microphones and I was still learning them. I hadn't really debugged it. And we did a really, we had a really nice conversation, but it turned out that there was just terrible static on the audio because I didn't have it dialed in right. Um, and so that podcast never got recorded and I had already moved on to episodes 23 and 24. So we never did 22. So tomorrow Zeke and I um, are going to be going up to Ramona to meet with Mark DeShero, who is the, um, the owner of classic rotors. And this is this incredible, you know, for I'm going to make it simplified here, but it's like a helicopter museum, but it's so much more than that. I mean, it's all these kinds of propeller aircraft and, uh, um, and he's got this unbelievable collection. It's this huge 10,000 foot hangar with these um, tandem helicopters like you see in the, in the Vietnam war um, documentaries and then these experimental aircraft and just insane. So um, Zeke and I are going to go up there on Thursday and we're going to do a remote podcast and uh, have a nice interview up there. And we're going to make that one episode 22. So um, today is number 90 and then we'll be on the home stretch 10 more till we get to the big 100. To me, that's a big milestone. I mean, you look at people that do podcasts. I mean, there are like like 350,000 or more podcasts that are available on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or any other popular platforms. A lot of them only do a couple of episodes. You know, they might make it to five or maybe seven. Um, we're This is episode number 90. So I'm really proud of what we're accomplishing here. We're slowly building our audience, um, getting some traction here in the San Diego County community. We've got people that are listeners and watchers that are from other parts of the country, which is great. Uh, but we're just kind of, you know, we're on a slow build and, and uh, I'm loving it. This is a, for me, this is just a wonderful project. And right now, you know, we're doing these podcasts and we're doing the interviews. And then sometimes I get up here and share my thoughts on current events and other, and other angles. 
But I've got a whole other thing that I'm working on that I'll be releasing shortly. And I'm essentially trying to build like a little bit of a business aspect around this podcast. Um, And I've got a couple of ideas that I'm working on. So um, I'll be sharing some of that with you, you know, as we get a little bit further into the year and maybe in early 2020. Uh, But this is what makes this project for me just so enjoyable. It's like a canvas. And I can do what I want. I can say what I want. I can share what I want. I can invite guests as I like. And, you know, it's a, you know, it's almost like I used to, I used to play music. Um, you know, it was like a garage band guy. I had fun with that. Um, and I used to always think of my life that way. It was like a three-pronged stool where I had my family life, my work life, and then my third prong is this, you know, other hobby that I had. And, um, you know, I, I haven't played music probably in about six years, and um, I kind of was missing that third leg of the stool. And now with this podcast, I have it back. And it's just this is a very rewarding and fulfilling experience for me. So if you're listening, if you're watching, if you're enjoying with this with me, thank you, because this is special for me. Um, OK, so let's get into this Oklahoma uh, prisoner release. And this also was just in the news. I think it broke yesterday. This was fantastic. What had happened is, is that in the state of Oklahoma, they released approximately 500 prisoners, um, you know, early, you know, before they had completed their sentence. And and I, I mean, I, I've often, you know, uh, ranted about the problems with our criminal ju- uh, justice system. I'll call it a criminal injustice system and all the things that are just so terrible with it. And we're going to go through a list of things. But this is really special because in some some states, you're seeing a little bit of a relaxation on the war on drugs. But Oklahoma never got that memo. And they have been increasing the um, severity and, and the and the incarceration rate in Oklahoma as it relates to drug possession, drug dealing. And it's shot their prison numbers, you know, through the roof. And now you're starting to see a little bit of a change. And so. I'll just read this excerpt from the article in The Guardian, and and I'll include the the link in the show notes. Governor Kevin Stitt, a Republican, and and let me back up for a minute here. Yeah, he's a Republican. That doesn't matter. I'm not stroking Republicans or Democrats. I'd still have the same story if it was a Democrat doing this. I don't care. (laughs) We're we're reducing our incarceration state. That's great, great, great news. So Governor Kevin Stitt uh, shook hands uh, um, of the women as they left Eddie Warrior on Monday afternoon. I guess Eddie Warrior must be the name of the prison. Oklahoma voters approved a state initiative in 2016 that reclassified certain drug and property crimes as misdemeanors instead of felonies. This year, lawmakers passed a bill making those changes apply to people who are already serving felony sentences for those crimes. Okay, that's great. But what the hell took you so long? If in 2016 the voters wanted to you know, downshift and make some of these crimes misdemeanors rather than felonies, then the, the, the legislature should have immediately done that, uh, implemented that same model retroactively for the people that were in prison. But they didn't do it until three years later. I mean, come on. Um, so people are stuck in prison for something that wouldn't be considered a prison sentence if they were arrested right now. 
but at least they got to it and and they did the the state legislature finally voted for it and and the um the mayor signed off so the mass re- release you know about 500 um inmates and it, interesting if you saw the video mostly women uh women that are largely in on drug related crimes sometimes there's a little bit of violence involved um, the mass release marks a striking change for criminal justice reform in Oklahoma. Um, per capita, the state has the second highest incarceration rate in the United States. That's what I said earlier. They didn't get the memo about some of these states relaxing the war on drugs. They were still going after it hot and heavy. Um, and it locks up women at the highest rate of any state in the union. Uh, before the mass release on Monday, state prisons held almost 25,750 people. They only let out about 500. So what is that? That's about um, 2%. Okay. That's great. I mean, this is the right kind of thing. I mean, we we need to – Yeah, sometimes you wonder why in the heck is the prison sentences so punitive – I mean, so sometimes disproportional to the crime that was committed. And I don't know I, I, I tend to think of some of it has to do with, you know, religion and Old Testament eye for an eye and kind of really hardcore uh, punishment. And you also get politicians that run on these sort of tough on crime positions and they en- end up winning a lot of voters. But I think that plays a role here as well. But check out this story. And this is this is emblematic of the problem that exists in Oklahoma. So police pulled over Keisha Snyder in 2015 while she was driving in the tiny Oklahoma town of Bowley. They said she had activated her turn signal too early, made a wide turn and had a burned out left a burned out light over her license plate. So just a, a ticky tacky routine traffic stop. Okay. Didn't make user turn signal, had a burnt out light um, on her um, license plate frame, made the turn a little too wide. Um, but according to the police report, officers found two marijuana cigarettes in her red Mazda. Two. Okay. Prosecutors offered a Snyder a deal. She could go through the state's drug court program or face eight years in prison. Eight years for a ticky-tacky traffic um, uh, infraction and getting busted with two marijuana cigarettes, which, by the way, are completely legal in California and a lot of other states. Just two. And, you know, it wasn't like she was this, you know, she had, um, you know, a suitcase full in her back in her trunk and she was dealing it. It was just two innocent little cigarettes. So, and this is where it gets really crazy because this is why I always talk about how the criminal injustice system is just so awful. It it traps people in very bad situations. Snyder struggled for three years to meet all the requirements of the drug court. Because remember, she was given a choice. She can do the, the drug court and go through all these regulations or she can agree to go to prison for eight years. So... She ended up. Um, she ended up. Uh, my, my tablet. All of a sudden, I, my battery is low. I'm at five percent. Oh no! So it just dimmed on me. So um, she ended up going through all all of these drug tests, um, and they cost her hundreds of dollars for each of these tests. And she was only making eight dollars and ten cents an hour as a nurse's aide. And last year, she finally just gave up, and she said it was just easier to go to prison. 
because it was so onerous to have to pay for all these drug tests. And then I'm thinking, this is even worse. I mean, not only is the prison sentence just amazingly disproportionate, um, way too severe, but the rehabilitation plan they gave her, she was doomed to fail. Um, and, and then she ends up giving up and saying, it's just easier to go to prison. I mean, could you imagine thinking that it's easier just to go to prison? So I, th- this whole thing, I mean, the, the whole incarceration state is, this is a deep, deep issue. And we could, we could peel back the layers of the onion on this one. I'd love to have a guest here that maybe has done research or written books or works in the, in, um, you know, as a, as a police officer or in the courts or in the prisons, because I think we could learn a great deal. But just some top of mind thing, top of mind things for me. So I always talk about this podcast is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay, that's our, those are inalienable rights, individual rights that are enshrined in our Declaration of Independence, right in the preamble, and it means that we own ourselves. You know, we we have liberty. How is a routine traffic stop with two marijuana cigarettes getting eight years in prison consistent at all? with an inalienable right to liberty. It's not. It's a complete violation of those individual rights that we are supposed to have. So this is just a system that's gone way, way, way too far. And really, you know, innocent people, you know, people that are really not trying to cause harm to anyone, these are victimless crimes, for goodness sake, and they're getting thrown in the slammer for eight years. Um. And a lot of this is all really tied to the war on drugs. And I'll rant on that every once in a while, too, because the war on drugs, I mean, I know some people, they're saying we can't have drugs in society. We got to keep our children clean. And that makes sense. I understand that. Um, And we need to do that with just like we need to do that with alcohol and tobacco and educate, you know, children, educate young adults to make good choices. Um, and hold people accountable if they're committing crimes when they're, you know, high um, or if they're, you know, behaving in a way that's threatening to other people. If they're high, then absolutely they should be held accountable for that. But the war on drugs has a whole dark side to it. I mean, not only is it resulting in this huge incarceration state, and we're going to go through the numbers, just an insane number of um, Americans are in prison, way more than any other nation on the planet. Um, people are losing their freedoms, losing their liberties. Um, they're being trapped in poverty. When they do get out, a lot of times, you know, they're a marked felon and they can't get a job. Um, and then on the other side of it is, is because drugs are illegal, they're then distributed through the black market. Um, so whenever there is a dispute, it's not like, you know, they go to court and, and uh, you know, <laughs> debate the the fine terms of, of, of a contract if a deal goes bad. They 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 actually take on the judicial system themselves with guns and it leads to a whole uh, tremendous amount of violence and an underground crime because these products are sold illegally. Um, they're sold, um, you know, in the shadows. So the war on drugs, in my opinion, is vastly more damaging to society um, than any upside that it happens to have. And it's just embolden the police state, embolden authoritarianism, and just stuffed insane numbers of people in prison. Um, and then, you know, on top of it, if you really look at the numbers, it, it skews disproportionately towards people of color, and that causes other societal and cultural problems and, and, and 
and that's why there are a lot of times the you know people of color they get pulled over by the police they're in huge fear that they're going to get essentially something like this will happen like this woman a, a ticky tacky um uh, you know traffic incident could turn into spending years in jail so you know in some cases you know police officers have shot innocent people um so it, the whole war on drugs is just it re- results in like um what else the uh um, civil forfeiture, like where people will get busted on a drug crime and then suddenly the government comes in and seizes their vehicle, seizes their cash, seizes their house. Um, and a lot of times before they've even been convicted in a court of law, it's just that they've been arrested. Um, people are essentially guilty until proven innocent. We're supposed to be the other way around, innocent until proven guilty. So the whole the whole war on drugs is just so damaging to society. And it does. It traps people in poverty. So imagine if you go to jail for eight years. Okay, you're poor for eight years. You can't take care of your family. You know, if you if you're fortunate to have a two adults in a two parent household and suddenly one of those parents is now thrown in jail, the other parent is going to struggle working two or three jobs to support those children and trapping them in poverty, trapping them in a cycle of uh, multi-generational welfare. And then when the person gets out of jail, like I said, they're they're a felon. They now essentially have a scarlet letter on their shirt and they have a hard time getting work. They can't find a job because they're a felon and they have to check the box on those application forms. So um, it it traps people in in poverty. And then the politicians play into this. They know how to manipulate society and they want to push these tough on crime laws and we saw a lot of that, especially in it began, you know, the whole war on drugs began in the 70s. And if you believe the history of it, I'm, I, I'm not going to confirm this. I'm not certain if this is absolutely true. But the story is, is that the Republicans under Nixon implemented it to try to keep the the hippies and the blacks under control and to limit their influence and in some cases throw them in jail. So it was a race, race-based and, and even a politically-based initiative. But then we got into the 80s, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, you know, just say no. And the, the war on drugs, the police state enforcement became greater and greater. And even into the 90s, we saw, well, a lot of the um, crime bills that were you know, passed by Bill Clinton and and even Joe Biden, when he was a senator, was one of the leading forces in getting those crime bills through that enacted onerous um, prison sentences for really very minor crimes. And then we saw it in California with this three strikes here out bill. And it was very trendy there in the 80s, but especially in the 90s to have these just really hardcore, um, you know, policies to throw people in jail and it's just created this huge problem where we have just so many people in prison. Um, and uh, it's a huge expense on taxpayers. I mean, never mind the terrible damage it does to the people in prison and the families, but it creates an, a gigantic expense um, on taxpayers. And up until very, very recently in the state of California, the state budget spent more money on prisons than it did on colleges and universities. I mean, think about that. That's, that's like priorities upside down. You know, we're pay, spending more money. Again, it, it just changed recently, but for a long time it was this way, where 
they were spending more money throwing people into prison than they were putting children into colleges. I mean, it's just a disaster. It's it's a shameful act. Um, and then, what, like I said, I, I think in the one of the one of the motivating reasons, in my opinion, I think is religious because I think you know the whole Old Testament eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. There's you know there's a lot of very sort of hardcore. Um, punishment that we saw in in the scripture in the Old Testament. And I think that plays out in a lot of parts of American society. But what's interesting is the New Testament, you know, Jesus preached, you know, forgiveness and turning the other cheek and love thy neighbor and a whole, you know, he was all about second chances. I mean, you know, some of even his apostles, some of them had checkered pasts. So, Really, you know, if we're a nation, some people say we're a Christian nation. I I won't say that, but I know other people will. Um, If we're a Christian nation, we should be embracing forgiveness. We should be giving people second chances. I mean, how often we make mistakes, you know, when we're young. I mean, I was watching one of the TV segments of one of the women that was released from this Oklahoma prison. She was 17 when she was arrested and she was in jail for five years. And, you know, she had a child at the age of 15. The child was two years old when she went to jail and it was for drug possession. And then there was like, I think, a theft, you know, probably to feed the drug addiction. She went to to, jury, uh, to prison for five years. It was actually, I think, an eight or a 10 year sentence. So they reduced it. And she was one of the 500 that was let out. She didn't get to see her daughter for five years other than some, you know, crazy visits in a prison. Um, so the... The amount of damage this does to families, to taxpayers, it's outrageous. And we need to find ways to rehabilitate and not to make some of these penalties so punitive. Um, And then the other story, and I I think I might have shared this in in another podcast, but it's it's another good one worth reporting. Back around, I think it was 2010, I think maybe 2008, one of those years, there was a state proposition in the state of California to do something similar to what Oklahoma is doing, to make certain drug crimes not a felony, but instead a misdemeanor, you know, probably like for possession of small amounts, that sort of thing. And so I remember seeing that on the ballot. I was like, hey, right on. I know how I'm going to vote on this. I'm going to vote to reduce those sentences. But then, you know, you get the voter pamphlet in the mail and it shows the list of all the candidates. But then you get to the propositions and they're wonderful because it'll give a full listing of the proposition so you can read it in advance, the full text, rather than just like the little summary in the ballot box, in the ballot booth. But then it would also have a pro argument and a con argument and a list of the endorsers on both sides. Well, the group that was opposed to this, that was leading the charge in opposition, that was the spokesperson for the opposition of this proposed law in California to reduce some of these drug crimes from felonies to misdemeanors, that leading voice was the Prison Employee Worker Union. <laughs> um, so these are all government employees. Their union, you know, in, it's in their vested interest to have a lot of people in prison. So they can make more money and so they can keep their jobs. And so um, it, it, it ended up um, passing in California, thank goodness. Um, but you have to – when you go look at these situations, you really need to follow the money because a lot of times there are corrupt people that are involved. Um, so uh, did something here on my tablet. I got to make sure I don't run out of 
battery life. Oh, I'm down to 3%. Uh, so I got to finish this podcast before I can't read my notes. Um, but here's some interesting stats. So the top 10 countries with the highest incarceration states uh, rates, and, and these are generally the industrialized larger cu- countries, not some of the, the smaller ones. Number one was the United States, which has 2.3 million people incarcerated, um, 737 people out of 100,000. By far the most, in, the highest incarceration incarceration rate of any nation on the planet. This is a nation that prides itself on liberty and justice for all and on life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness and land of the free and home of the brave, a, a, a country that prides itself on liberty, yet it's throwing people in prison for these nonviolent crimes. It's ridiculous. Um, so number two is Russia. Number three, Ukraine. Number four, South Africa. Uh, number five, Poland, six, Mexico, seven, Brazil, eight, Spain, nine, Kenya, and 10, Netherlands. But, you know, U.S. is number one. Russia was second place. There's still a good gap between one and two. But then once you get to Ukraine, South Africa, Poland, it drops off really quick. So this, if you were to graph it, it's like a hockey stick in America right at the top. It's just, it's just really shameful that we have that many people locked up in prison. Now, some here's just some other top of mind things when people talk about prisons. And like I said, we could talk about this issue, the, the whole topic of the incarceration state and prisons. We can go for multiple podcasts. Um, so I'm just going to share a couple of things. Sometimes you'll see people, especially on social media, really get into an uproar about private prisons and how awful private prisons are. And Bernie Sanders will talk about it, how, you know, we can't have prisons that are making a profit off of putting people in jail, you know, because, again, a lot of progressives see profit as something evil, um, which is a whole other topic. But I think it's important to keep this in perspective. Private prisons only account for about 10% of the prisoners in America. Now, say what you will about private prisons, but they're not the main problem because 90% of the prisoners are in government-run prisons. Okay, the real problem is the criminal justice system um, as it exists. There are too many laws. There are too many cops enforcing the laws. There are too many people in prison. I mean, and there's too much money involved in this whole um, injustice or justice system. Um, and it's if, I mean, if you're thinking also, some people say, oh, it's greed. It's those private prisons and how greedy they are. Well, what if I've just told you, like they had a California proposition, the people that were leading the charge to prevent these from being reduced, the, these drug crimes from being felonies to misdemeanors are government workers. Okay, because so if if you're worried about greed, I mean, it's not exclusive to the private group. It also applies to the government workers, too, because they're trying to get what they can for themselves. Um, So the private prison thing, I mean, that's an issue. But let's we have to have a sense of proportion here, folks. That's a really small fraction. It's only 10 percent of all the people that are in prison. Um, One also interesting thing is there's 540,000 people that are in prison right now that have not been convicted and not been sentenced. You're thinking, how can that be possible? Well, these are people that have been arrested, went to jail, and then they didn't have the money to provide bail. So if you can't put up bail, you're stuck in prison until whenever the time comes when you have a, a trial. And so there are like over a half a million people in. And it takes, you know, approximately $10,000 bail. So if you got a bail bond, maybe is that 1000 or is 10000 the bail bond and the bail is 100000 
I'm not sure. But according to this article, it said the bail, so I'll take it as that. The bail is 10000 And for a lot of these people, that's like, you know, eight months worth of their work, you know, because a lot of them don't make very much. So um, the system is just terribly damaged. Um, and so we really need to see some adjustments to this. And and then, you know, one in five people in prison are in there on drug-related crime. Now, some of it's nonviolent because it's just possession or it's just selling. Some of it's violent because there's a violent aspect around it, right? You know, whether they're enforcing bad drug deals, like what I talked about, where, you know, on the dark side, in the shadows, in the in the underground economy, is that where the violence is occurring? Or is it violence related to addicts that are just trying to get anything they can so they can get some money? I mean, those are all serious problems. But I think in a lot of ways, the fact that these drugs are illegal is part of the reason why we have some of that violence. If they were more readily accessible so that addicts could at least have access to it, then we'll see that situation be a little bit more relaxed. I'm not advocating for them to use the drugs. I'm not advocating for the addiction, but I'm just saying if you keep it illegal, then that's going to result in a lot more violent situations. It's also going to create this whole mess around our criminal justice system. So uh, there's, there's a lot more to this. But this is just a great example of one of many ways that government policy traps people in poverty. And I've commented on this before with this whole notion of income inequality and people get up in arms about inequality. And I understand why. I mean, there's some people in this nation that are tremendously rich. There's a lot of people that are tremendously poor. Um, now, the middle class, some people say the middle class is shrinking. Well, the main reason the middle class is, is getting smaller is because more people are getting rich than are getting poor. Um, that's a good thing um, that we're seeing more people that are actually improving. And even the people that are at the bottom, their situation is far better than people at the bottom in other nations, far better than people at the bottom 20, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Um, so, but still there are issues. And some people want to solve this notion of income inequality by taxing the rich and taking their money and giving it to people in, in, in poverty. I don't think that's the right answer. The right answer is, is to remove these policies that trap people in poverty, like the incarceration state, like this whole criminal injustice system. And that is one of a long list of policies, and I think I might have gone through that in a previous podcast, that traps people in poverty. Um, those are the things that need to be addressed. Okay, so I had a great quote to share with you, but my tablet has gone dead, and I should have charged it before I started this podcast because it was only at 5 or 6%, and I don't have my quote. And I wanted to share it. It was a good quote, uh, but it was really talking about you know, the damage to society about our terrible um, criminal justice system, prison system, and all of the disruption it creates in society. So I will save that quote for our next podcast, which will be episode number 91. Okay, so um, I'm going to wrap it up here. It's uh, Tuesday, November 5th, 2019. We're kind of getting close to Thanksgiving. You know, one of my friends, um, I remember he said to me, this was Gosh, almost almost 30 years ago, gulp. Um, he said the holiday season begins on Halloween and it ends on Super Bowl Sunday. And 
Okay, so we are now officially in the holiday season. So hope you're having a great time. Um, hope you're getting ready for Thanksgiving. If you're traveling on Thanksgiving, I think that's going to be awesome. We're going to, my son will be here from Albuquerque. My daughter's already here. Uh, so we'll have the family together here. Uh, probably connect with my mom too and do something special. Hope you're getting ready to do something special on Thanksgiving because it's what, maybe two weeks away? No, maybe three weeks away. It'll be Thanksgiving. So, uh, so anyways, wishing you all a great holiday season and uh, we'll be back. This is the John Riley Project, episode 91. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching, folks. Bye bye.